your host, Sean, none other than my very own dad, sits down with inspirational individuals who share key learnings from their own experiences on becoming great. Sean sits down and unpacks their formula for success and in turn highlights how we can all learn from others' experiences, unlocking our own scope to grow and become our best version. I'm confident that you will all enjoy it. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Hey guys, uh, welcome to the first episode of the new season. Uh, We're really, really lucky to have a great first guest as part of that. Uh, This awesome podcast with performance strategist Andrew May, who has, is coaching a number of the ASX top 20 CEOs to perform at their peak and has also coached the likes of Kieran Perkins and Glenn McGrath. Uh, Aside from all of this, uh, he has qualifications in exercise physiology and coaching psychology. He has also started a PhD linking performance intelligence to leadership capacity. Last but certainly not least, he's an entrepreneur. He's uh, built and sold three businesses, including one to KPMG. Super interesting guy. Uh, I'm really confident there'll be plenty of takeaways. Uh, I really hope you enjoy. We're super lucky to have Andrew May here today. Clearly uh, an overachiever, but uh, welcome, Andrew. Appreciate you joining us here today. Thank you, Sean. An overachiever, but like all of us in this COVID-19 environment, wondering out of the skills that I've uh, grown or what I've done, how you actually apply that to this new world. It's crazy times, right? I think it's never been harder to lead, uh, never been challenging or more challenging to run a business or to be a high performer. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation because I think a lot of what we're going to talk about has shifted from, that's a nice to do, to, geez, I better do this because I, I actually really need to survive. No, I don't think that's a, it's a fantastic uh, segue. So I'm just going to set the scene a little bit for some of those listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with uh, the work you've done over a period of time and maybe, you know, some of the context we're going to explore today. So you've spent the last 20 years helping business leaders and their teams improve performance, productivity and well-being. You also started recently in a conference uh, call that we're both part of that mental health is 10 times more common than 50 years ago. And a lot of drug companies have given up on the cure for mental health. I guess my my experience and my sort of uh, view or lens through the corporate world and what we do in recruitment is there are a number of people that are stressed, anxious, overweight, unhappy, unfulfilled, and, and a little bit disconnected. And, and perhaps there's a desire or wish to, to have a better way to live or operate. And there's that guilt, um, I guess, around trying to balance all aspects of leadership, being a partner, a parent, and and perhaps those latter ones suffer sometimes and, and maybe a bit of a, a view that where do you start? So I guess the goal today is to provide some tangible and simple tips or tricks about how to get your body and brain fit for work and life. So I might just sort of bounce off that sort of uh, backdrop and just sort of ask you, Based on your experience, like we touched on before, working with some of uh, the most impressive business leaders and the likes uh, across Australia, w- what's your take on mental health in the corporate context, firstly? Interesting you said that 10 times more prevalent. And um, I think that stat was positioned when I did a recent talk for YPO and a mutual contact of ours, Craig Tozer, quoted that in my introduction. It's pretty scary, isn't it, Sean, to think that there are now 10 times more recorded cases in the corporate world of stress, anxiety or depression than there was decades ago. And when I talk to a lot of leading psychologists in this area, we, we believe it's probably two things. One is I, I think people are now 
more comfortable to put their hand up and say, hey, I'm struggling, whereas, you know, 15, 20 years ago, especially the stereotypical Aussie male, uh, Kiwi males would put us all in the same bracket, mate. We, we <laughs> felt like we were uh, weak or soft by putting your hand up and saying, I'm not okay. Uh, but we're seeing everyone now from All Blacks to Wallabies to AFL footballers, rugby league players, netball, a myriad of athletes you know, sticking their hand up and saying mental health is if you have a hamstring injury, you see a physio. If you're struggling with anxiety or depression, you see a psychologist and there should be nothing wrong with that. So I think that's the first thing is that uh, it's probably more accepted now uh, that people can put their hand up, whereas I think 20, 30 years ago, a lot of this went silent. I think the second factor is we are under more pressure. So I think, well, the first one is it would be flippant of me just to say, oh, people are more comfortable. I, I believe we're under more pressure. We are connected from sun up to sundown. Um, we've had so many challenges, you know, banking and finance leaders have had royal commissions. We've had bushfires, farmers and agribusiness have had drought and flood. And then you throw in COVID-19. So there's this sort of wave after wave after wave hitting us. And I just don't think people are recovering properly. We're not recovering physically. We're not recovering psychologically. And when you have any ecosystem out of balance, you get cracks in the system. So I think the second factor is there are more cracks in the system because we're just not living the life that our bodies and brains were designed to live, which is this blend between stress. Stress is awesome, but then you've got to recover. You know, you know I know you you love the All Blacks, and if I was a Kiwi mate, I'd be saying I love the All Blacks too. It's been pretty dry a few <laughs> years for the Wallabies, and hopefully with the changes at the top now, we might be on a path where we can actually give you guys a run for your money. But um, in the world of sport, you know, Graham Henry, is, is one of his famous sayings was pressure is a privilege. Go out there, you've earned it. I love that. I get goosebumps. Um, but it's a privilege for that 80 minutes of football. But I think in the corporate world where we're on, we're connected 15, 16 hours a day. So long answer, but I think there's two things. One is it's more accepted to admit you've got some challenges psychologically. The second one is we are just under this ridiculous amount of connection and pressure, and we need to have some valves to release. Fantastic answer there. I think you're right. The stigma around it has changed dramatically. I think growing up as a young individual in New Zealand, if you were to put your hand up and say that you were battling a little bit mentally, I think there would have been an awful lot of fear that that would be judged as, like you say, soft or weak. So I think that's now not the case. I think it's you know so common and normalised now. Still a way to go, but uh, much more accepted, which is fantastic. And people also investing in people like yourselves or mental skills coach to sort of work through and navigate some of those challenges so i think that's a it's a good point to make but as we sort of take those lessons maybe from from sport to you know i guess other aspects of life obviously in sport they spend a lot of time training but they spend maybe an equal amount of time around how do they rest and recover to be at their best and and i think uh you mentioned before that you know i think uh outside of sport we seem to be constantly on you know we're always accessible and all the rest of it and there's a maybe a desire or or a feeling sometimes we've got to keep working through what's in front of us. But maybe you can just sort of touch on, uh, I guess, your view on defining mental fatigue and how do we recover in a non-sport context and, and why should we make time for that? Yeah, look, great question. Um, I, I spent 15 years working in elite sport, so I was a middle-distance runner. Um, I had aspirations to represent my country and break the four-minute mile, and I didn't either. So um, if you did your due diligence, you're, you're, not inter- you're not interviewing me as a high-performance athlete. You know, I was good, not great. That's how I explained <laughs> my 
athletic uh, prowess, but I was multiple state champion in a number of states and um, yeah, had, had skills in that area. Then got a, a, a scholarship coaching at the Institute of Sport in Tasmania. But then I transferred that working with a lot of sports in Tassie, so netball, hockey, AFL. Then I moved back to Sydney. And I think really the highlight in my sports conditioning career, uh, I did some work with David Misson when he was at the Sydney Swans, which was a, a wonderful opportunity. Um, but the, the main role I had was in cricket with New South Wales Cricket as their performance manager and then travelled the world with the Australian cricket team. And especially with the Aussie cricket team, Sean, like, you know, we're travelling the world and you've got a fair bit of time when you're on tour. So uh, John Buchanan was the coach when I was first there and then Tim Nielsen took over the reins and they were both, they've both got a wonderful appreciative inquiry, meaning they just don't go to a country and sit in the hotel room and play computer games or watch TV. They sort of get us out there and look around. So uh, Buck, especially on John Buchanan, you know, arranged, we'd go and look behind the scenes at Manchester um, and look at what their training was. So we really got to see a window into some of these elite performers. And so summary, 15 years in elite sport, the world's greatest athletes, the world's greatest teams, they train hard, but they recover even harder. So they spend as much money, as much time. It's gone to a whole level now, I believe. Novak Djokovic has got a truck that he takes with him around the world, which is a recovery centre. He's got cryotherapy, obviously massage, uh, ice baths, uh, a whole lot of physical modalities, some psychological, to help him stay on the tennis court. And I'm sure Roger Federer is doing the same. There's no uh, fluke why he's 38 and still up there with the chance to, to win majors. You look at Tom Brady as well. Now he's just gone to a new NFL team. And how many Super Bowls has he got? Five or six Super Bowls? So there's the Michael Jordan documentary on at the moment, and he's definitely the GOAT. There's the argument between Jordan and LeBron James around the greatest of all time, but I think there's no argument it is Jordan. If you look at NFL, you put Tom Brady in that, that category. Why are these athletes now playing well beyond the mid to late 30s and 40s? Absolutely. I have no doubt in my mind it's recovery. They are recovering better. Their bodies are going longer. They're not getting the, the tendinopathy. They're not getting the joints. They're they are soft tissue injuries. But I think they're also bringing in some psychological recovery, so they're staying engaged. I'm sure you've had this Sean, some of the ups and downs in the business cycle and recruiting, you know, when, when it's um, raining, how good is it being self-employed or being in a small business <laughs> when it stops? <laughs> Absolutely. How, how, how crappy is it in that first three weeks of COVID when you've got a blank diary, which I had? Um, yep. <laughs> so yep. I, I think what we've learned from sport is the physical and psychological recovery. That's different because you don't get soft tissue injuries sitting at a keyboard or you know, making sales calls. But it, it has allowed them to extend their careers and I think that's one of the biggest things I saw when I made the transition into the corporate world is that most corporates just don't recover like we we, we, we don't even have a structure around it or a conversation when I ask people and say what's your recovery plan they're like why are you asking this stuff mate you know I just work hard and I go on holidays and I get sick it's what I've always done yeah, no, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Around you know, and through this COVID exercise, around that word demarcation, and uh, obviously pre-COVID, you know, with technology and all the rest of it, it was common for work to integrate or infiltrate home life and those sorts of things. And I guess personally, one of the things I've found uh, with young kids, as you know, um, there's some challenges or curveballs you get with young kids and. One of the, the real benefits for a recovery point of view of having young kids is me taking a laptop home in the weekend and, and pre-COVID, I'll do that frequently, but I'd never get the chance to open it because I was just so busy 
hanging out, playing, tending to our kids. Uh, but what that meant from when I turned up to work on Monday, I felt very mentally recovered and ready to get back into work. But as I reflected on things prior to that, I think I would tend to work some portion of the weekend and I couldn't help but feel a little bit fatigued or not quite as rested uh, from a work or mental point of view when I go into work on a on a Monday morning. So inadvertently, I guess the kids have taught me a few things about the importance of shutting off, but they, they didn't give me the chance. I just had to, but I definitely noticed the personal benefits of that side of things. I think COVID has had some real positives. When it first happened, we all had the whites of the eyeballs. We're all in fear. You know, the world literally grew four clogs and stopped spinning. We closed borders. We shut down airports. We shut down businesses and we sent everyone home. Can you imagine going to a conference a few years ago, Sean, and you had someone like me come in or you had a futurist come in saying, hey, here's a scenario, and everyone would go, who's this, who's this idiot? Like, you know, this is not going to happen. Get, get this guy <laughs> off and let's go to the pub or let's go down the beach and, you know, kick the footy. Um, but it's been a fascinating, when I put my psychology hat on, it's a fascinating sociological and psychological experiment, um, and it's not all bad. So I think well, one of my favourite sayings is the art of contemplating free space and building free space into your life. And for years I've been telling executives and leaders that you need to free up space, you need to have a buffer. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 pure off to the next thing. We've had that space though, Sean, so we've been forced to actually slow down and actually build that frequency in. So that has actually been a really good thing. The other good thing I think for those who've got families or those who are connected is we're not travelling. You know, we're not spending 45, 60 minutes a day going to work. So if you've actually used some of the benefits on this, and, but I will step back and say COVID with means, means being three things. If you've got a job or money, number one. Number two, you've got a home, which is a house or an apartment that you feel comfortable in. And number three is you're connected, so you have friends and loved ones that make you feel like you belong. I think if you have all those three things, COVID has been, for some people, a good experience. I think if you don't have all those three, uh, I think it's been very challenging for some people, Sean. And when we get into the mental health side of COVID, whether you've got means or not, uh, and then you come down to your personality style. So if you're an extrovert, and I'm using Carl Jung's definition of how you draw energy, if you draw energy from other people, and it, what are you? Do you do you get energy from others? Uh, no, I personally find that I, I definitely get energy from being around people, and uh, I particularly like that in the morning. But when I do get a bit fatigued, I like to withdraw a little bit and then sort of recharge on my own. So I think I yin and yang between the, the, the two, to be honest. Um, and probably, oddly enough, I'm probably introverted by nature, but I've sort of taught myself a little bit to, to be much more comfortable with being extroverted and, and therefore draw energy from being around people. So I sort of yin and yang between the, the two. So uh, it's been an interesting sort of recontext working from home under this sort of circumstance. I, I definitely need the interaction with people to sort of get my energy up at times, but then there's other times where I need to re reflect back and, and recharge on my own. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that about the two. I oscillate between the two as well. And sort of if you saw me speak at a conference, remember we used to have conferences. <laughs> we used to yeah, that's get right. Together Way back, man. 
Yeah, or if I'm running a leadership program or I do a fair bit of media as well. And if you saw me do that, people go, oh, you're a definite extrovert. But I draw energy. When I'm working hard, I need to be by myself and reflect and have some time out and, you know, make meaning of everything that's happening. And also, just, I'm from the country, originally born in Wagga, grew up in Dubbo. I just need some space or some country time, I call it, just where, you know, I'm just sort of connecting with earth and it's not about technology and it's not with people. But we're a hybrid of the two. But for those people that are definitely definitely leading towards the introvert as far as, you know, you prefer to be by yourself or you're quite insular. COVID's been good. If you're the extrovert that draws energy with other people, a certain amount of pop-up screens on Microsoft Teams or on Zoom, it doesn't do it for you, Sean. So I think some people who are the extroverts, and if so building this, you're an extrovert and you don't have means or you're struggling in one of those areas. And, and now we're into the second phase of COVID. We're seeing a lot of fatigue. And second phase meaning we're going to be like this for at least nine to 18 months. So this is the new norm for now. And I'm calling it the NWW. Sounds like a women's or men's health magazine, but the new world of work, which is a hybrid between WFH, working from home, and integrating back into the workforce. Now, it's likely that we will have a second spike. It is also likely from some of the health experts that there could be another strain of this virus in the next one or two years. So the health experts believe we're going to be displaced again rather than going back to normal. So the reason for telling you this is we're in for the long game. And I read a very interesting article last week in the Australian Financial Review. I'm not sure if you saw it. It was uh, Shane Elliott, the CEO of ANZ, and Brad Banducci, the Woolworth CEO, saying that with really that phase one of COVID, the first eight weeks, it was all about implementation, reaction, let's get supply chain going. What do we do with the banks, people who've got distressed loans? How do we mobilise our call centres? You know, it was all immediate. We've come back after Easter and taken a breath and sort of gone, oh, the adrenaline's down. So we're not bombarding our systems 24-7. And that's when fatigue sets in. And I think it's a really important time now, Sean, for leaders to be conscious of their energy and to be conscious of you know, the physical signs of fatigue and some of those psychological and emotional signs of fatigue that you mentioned earlier. And I didn't expand on what they are, but the physical signs of fatigue, you're obviously tired, your body sometimes aches, and you haven't done a big training session or weight, so it's not that delayed onset of muscle soreness. And, and this often happens or mainly happens because your mitochondria, those powerhouse cells, fall asleep. Um, so it, it's a feeling of general fatigue and tiredness. That's the physical. Now, the mental fatigue, it, it's not it's not clear cut, and we call this the sort of fatigue basket. It's multifactorial. But there can be a whole range of poor performance indicators. You can have inadequate sleep, uh, your body clock's all over the place. You might find it's really hard to get yourself up. So something that you used to be engaged by and excited by at work or in your personal life doesn't bring you much joy. Uh, you might be retreating from social factors. That's all the mental side. And then there's the emotional side, which can be anger or just absolute apathy and disconnect. So it, it's really complex, isn't it? When you're looking at fatigue, you've got the physical fatigue, you've got the psychological fatigue, and then you've got the emotional fatigue. And I, and I think for leaders, being conscious of those different areas of fatigue, one for yourself, two for your team, is so important right now. So that's a good, uh, I think it's a good opportunity to sort of jump into, can you get your take on what your definition of positive psychology is? And, and I guess with that, uh, how does one achieve or be in this state more times than not? I mean, can you share any tips around developing 
that type of mind, mindset, whether it's a positive mindset or a growth mindset, and maybe some of the benefits of, of having that outlook? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, but I, I like that I now get asked about this rather than what's wrong with people. So positive psychology as a movement <laughs> goes back to Martin Seligman back uh, before the turn of the century. So it was 1998 or 1999, uh, and he tells a wonderful story to the American Psychology Association that he was watering his lawn. And... He was telling his young daughter to you know, go inside and don't get mud on your shoes and he was, he was telling her all what not to do. And apparently his daughter said, Dad, you know, aren't you? And, and Seligman was in charge of the APS, the American Psychological Association. And the story goes, his young daughter said, Dad, you know, you talk about psychology and you're in charge of psychologists. Why can't you ever tell me what's right? Why do you always tell me what's wrong? And this was his young daughter. And it was like, bang, it was a sucker punch to this guy. You know, Martin Seligman, the godfather. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the chair of the Australian, or the sorry, American Psychological Association, his young daughter cut him down by saying, Dad, you're such a negative bastard. I said, why can't you focus on what's right? So then Seligman <laughs> had a mission that was planted literally there to look at both sides of psychology. So with positive psychology, we, we look at more around flourishing or what's called the good life, eudaimonia. And so we look at the things in life that give us joy and the things that you know, bring Happiness sometimes, Sean, people go, oh, click your heels and go to Kansas. Um, but it, it's more around the performance psychology or what we sometimes say is above the line, so to excel in our life. Now, the below the line is where psychology started, and especially around the world wars. It was more around anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, and then positive psychology evolved that you have a whole range of emotions. And, and what I, I really try and teach people is part of the human condition is you should experience a range of emotions, meaning you will have sadness and you'll have some down days. And when you wake up and if you are sad or down, hopefully you've got a really good connection with that inner dialogue. Why am I feeling like this? You know, have I not moved recently? Did I drink too much last night? Did I have an argument with my spouse? Is work crappy at the moment? So you get to be really good at regulating, but we also want people to have more of the other sides, you know, the joy, the connection, the fun in life. And, and I think this whole um, Instagram, I look at with my young kids now and and, and I am concerned because you look at Instagram, it's bullshit. You know, everyone's amazing. You know, the Kardashians, they're fantastic. Um, they only put, and, and I'm the same, like you don't put, hey, I've just had a four hours writing, which was really boring, so I can get ready to do a seven-minute segment on ABC. So you only put the good stuff. And I'm actually going to do this down the track. I think when COVID settles a bit, I'm going to do the boring shit behind the cool stuff you put on Instagram. I want to see how many people sign off. But that's life. You know, you've got to get in the trenches. You've got to do the hard work. You're going to have some sad times, but you should have some good times and some meaningful times. So I like to look at positive as a range and let's hope through training, it's not just genetic predisposition, but through training, you can learn to focus more on what's right rather than what's wrong. And you mentioned the growth mindset principle with Carol Dweck. That's one of the key factors that's come out of Dweck's research. And uh, I mean, maybe just sort of leveraging that a little bit uh, in terms of training, you know, I guess that sort of mindset as opposed to having a view that you either do or don't have a growth mindset. But what's your sort of take on, you know, uh, sustained performance rituals or habits for that to become true? Is there any sort of key habits or rituals that you can share maybe? I know you sort of talk about this notion of the ideal day. Uh, Can you expand on that any further for the listeners? 
Yeah, I can. It's really interesting you talk about training on that because the research in this area shows around 50% of your psychology is inheritance. So uh, if your mum had this predisposition, let's say she was pessimistic, there's a 50% likelihood that you will be pessimistic. But there's a 50% likelihood that you won't be, that you can train that. And the way we train that is we look at thinking skills and we look at the, you know, the life you live, where you work and the people you hang around. So I think the first thing on that I wanted to impress upon people is just because you may have come from a tough background doesn't mean that that story has to continually play in your life. And you know, the, the extreme examples you read about someone like uh, Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, had a terrible upbringing. Uh, Oprah Winifrey had a terrible abusive upbringing. And you know, they're, they're billionaires and impacting millions of people's lives. So that's the first thing I think to imprint upon people. You can change the way you think. And I don't know about you, Sean, but I think that that statement is really powerful. It's empowering. You can change the way you think. And I think uh, now with all the information and ways to shift that way of thinking now, much more so than, than you know, 20 years ago, you know, where A, positive psychology probably wasn't even talked about and that notion of how to shift your mindset was inconceivable. So to, yeah. to have that now so available and have access to that, I think that's a, a huge thing. And I think back to where you started, maybe some of that around Instagram, your kids, I'd just love for our kids to have this as part of a standard curriculum to how do you how do you follow a process the same way you follow a formula in mathematics? How do you follow a process and some of the stuff you talk about to have that that growth mindset, the more beneficial mindset to enable people to navigate the twists and turns in life because they're inevitable, but to have a you know a much more fulfilling life, I think it should be a standard part of our curriculum. Don't know what your take is on that. Oh, absolutely. And with a lot of the work I do with leaders, uh, a number of boards now, executive teams, we're you know, coming and doing this, what sometimes is called basic work around how do you manage state? So how do you manage your physical state? How do you manage your psychological state? And how do you manage the environment to be a high performer? And, you know, what I've learned over 25 years, there's levers you can pull in all those areas, your physiology, your psychology, the environment to have a positive outcome on performance. So wouldn't it be great if we learned that as a kid? And it is it is getting better. Like I know my kids um, have gone through the Resilience Institute and some of the stuff they teach, but you know, we still, I remember volume equals four thirds pi r cubed uh, from when I was at school, Sean. So if you and I are on an expedition and we need to fill up a tank, give me the radius and I'll fill up that tank. How awesome is that? <laughs> but, Definitely but, listening in school, good to hear. That, that mathematics doesn't help me regulate my emotions uh, in COVID-19 when my story, our business overnight, lost 90% of revenue um, because with I do a lot of events and conferences. I do 50 to 60 keynotes a year uh, here in Australia and overseas now. And then we run a lot of high-end leadership programs and I do executive coaching. So that literally dropped overnight. So 90% of the revenue is gone. So I didn't go, hey, volume equals four-thirds pi r cubed. I'm going to really <laughs> work out how to backflip my business. But it was the self-talk, and it was some pretty dark days, as I'm sure you've had in your industry. But you draw on those resources around psychological resilience. You draw on storytelling. Hey, you know, I've been in some tough times before. Was it hard? Yeah. Did I get out of it? Yeah. What did I do? And then you start to work out a narrative around that. And that's sort of just closing the loop around training. Um, did you watch the, for an Australian, I call it the infamous 2003 World Cup? 
Rugby World Cup. <laughs> yeah. I did watch that. Yep. Why I asked did you watch it? Because uh, I know you're a Kiwi and the All Blacks weren't in it, so um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether <laughs> no, you were watch it. St- st- I can still see Sterling Moorcock take off with the rugby ball to score under the post. So, yeah, I was in yeah. Perth at the time. remember it well. And then Australia thought we had it sealed. And then in the dying moments, the ball cut out pass went to Johnny Wilkinson. And the commentators are saying, Johnny Wilkinson, it's on his non-dominant foot, his left foot. And I just thought he's going to sink it. Why? Because he trained thousands and thousands and thousands of left foot, right foot drop kicks to the point uh, Jason Webber, who uh, was used to be the physical performance manager at the Wallabies, and when I was with the Australian cricket team, we did a bit of, sort of code sharing a few training sessions. They, they wanted to have the Wallabies play the Australian cricket team in a game of cricket, and Glenn McGrath was excited to go and bounce all the, the, the big tearaways and then the, the props. But then when the Wallabies said, okay, then we'll play a game of uh, nine-a-side rugby, it was soon decided <laughs> that <laughs> let's just do a fitness session and we'll get the fitness trainers to, <laughs> to swap a few things. Can you imagine that? Like both sides would have literally been maimed and potentially killed. But Jason <laughs> said to me, he gave me tickets um, back in early 2000, said, look, come out to Homebush. It was the uh, British Lions or the English Lions were touring and playing the Wallabies. He said, but get out there a good hour before and watch Wilkinson warm up. I said, why? He said, just watch. And it was fascinating, Sean. Like, Wilkinson came out half an hour before everyone else and he was with one of his trainers and they put a grid of cones out and then they were measured. So there was a a formula to this. And the trainer would do a cutout pass to Wilkinson, 10 drop kicks, bang, 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 from that first cone on the right foot, 10 on the left, then he'd move to the next cone and then the next and the next and the next and the next. And there was a repeat pattern, 10 on the right, 10 on the left, 10 on the right, 10 on the left. And apparently sometimes he'd swap it around, 10 on the left, 10 on the right. So when the cutout ball came to him, cutout pass in 2003, his brain had done that that many times. It was it's called mental blueprint. He just knew what to do. And athletes would tell you in a high-performance situation, they cut out the 100,000 screaming people. They cut out the, the pressure of a nation and they just go into autopilot because that is what they've done. Now, if what you've done up until now is always tell yourself that, oh, life sucks, you know, bad news follows me, I have a bad time, guess what? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you've got to learn to, you know, put the witch's hats out and do 10 drop kicks on the right, 10 on the left. That's stuff like gratitude pausing and going, you know, what's good in my life? It's journaling. And I don't know whether you've done journaling, Sean, but when I first started, I thought I was crazy. Like, who is this person writing all this stuff in black and white? My gosh. But then it helps you, you know, laugh at yourself and realise our emotions take away. We get had by our emotions. We have emotions, but we get had by emotions. And then it helps you make it meaningful or put it into context. So I think there are a few simple things as an example on how you can train yourself to, to handle pressure and to be more positive. So if we sort of use that as a bit of a an opportunity to sort of keep uh, building on that notion of of, uh, of a formula, right? A formula to sort of get desired outcomes. So you refer to these principles and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll state them quickly and maybe you can give us a quick overview in the interest of time, but talk us through the principles of Move, fuel, recharge, think, connect, and play. Can you elaborate that? I know there's a, a bit to get through, but can you elaborate on that quickly? Yeah, I'll give you the high level, and then you might want to choose one or two. I can go a bit deeper. Um, but in putting together the book that Dr. Tom Buckley and I uh, came out in October last year, but we were writing it a long time before it comes out, obviously, 
we've looked at thousands of evidence-based peer-reviewed journals to look at what are the levers that impact performance. So from a high level, it's the body and the brain. But we're not just a head on a stick because, you know, when I studied exercise physiology 20 years ago, I'm embarrassed to say now, but a mate of mine went out with a psychologist and we would say to him, well, what do you talk about? Like, you know, we're the push-up guys and carrots and, you know, getting fit and, you know, she's about Freud and cognition. And I'm kind of even saying that what a terrible thing to say is a conversation. But, you know, <laughs> if you focus on the body, it improves your brain. If you focus on the brain, it improves your body. So then we looked at what are the six levers and, and they, those six got to move regularly. That includes daily steps, 10,000 steps a day to, to wake up your mitochondria and a balance of, you know, do a bit of lifting, a bit of cardio, a bit of stretching, a bit of balance and a bit of posture. Fuel is nutrition. So, you know, eating a, mainly what we call a paleo diet without the BS. Uh, and everything doesn't have to be macro, micro, so complex that when you get invited for dinner parties, you never get asked again. Uh, and it's also cutting back sugar, <laughs> cutting back alcohol, cutting back a lot of the processed foods. Um, recharge is two things. It's physical recovery. So how do you get into parasympathetic activation and psychological detachment, switching off the brain? Think we've spoken a lot about and think is everything from you know, base psychology to get yourself above the line. So self-talk, thought processes, and then the performance or the pointy end of psychology. Uh, connect. This is a really interesting one. The last two, connect and play. Uh, not a lot of people t- were talking about the well-being or the biohacking or performance space, but I'm a big believer in connection, not Wi-Fi, but, you know, connecting with your purpose, then connecting with others, then connecting with community and connecting with nature. And we know now, especially COVID, one of the benefits a lot of people have had is, hey, how nice is it in the ocean or how nice is it going for a walk with my kids at the local um, park? And the final one is play because big kids, we need to have fun laughter, play and entertainment. So they're the six levers after looking at thousands of peer-reviewed journals. So it's move, fuel, recharge, think, connect and play. And the knee bone's connected to the ankle bone. So meaning when you move, it's not just good for physical fitness, it's good for your brain. They're all good for your body, they're all good for your brain. Maybe just a couple of things just to dive into and obviously the book goes into it in, in greater detail, but where do things like meditation come in? And then you talked about the importance of playing and, and, and connecting with uh, you know, your kids or other things. How, how do you make that somewhat habitual or make it happen in a busy life? You're, you're, you're an entrepreneur, you're a business person, you've got a lot contending for your time, customers, et cetera. So talk to us about meditation and then how you actually make time to play and connect. Yeah, good, good question. So meditation, I don't think there would be anyone listening to your podcast going, what's meditation? So yeah, we know what meditation is or we've seen this lots of different types from transcendental meditation to what I call moving meditation, uh, which a lot of people get when they're going for a walk on a bush track or they're on a bike or they're out on a surf ski or swimming in the ocean. So it's where you disconnect psychologically. So to me, really, meditation is just about presence and slowing down that internal chatter so you can connect with your thoughts and feelings. And, and there's a whole range of different activities to do around that. And, and I think one of the keys on this, Sean, is it's not one size fits all. So I don't know whether you meditate regularly, but I'm not good at listening to a 15 to 20 minute track where take a deep breath in and then breathe out. Now picture yourself in the lavender fields 
It's a windy day. <laughs> like, uh, if I listen to that once or twice, I, I look, I, I can get into the state. But if I listen to something more than two or three times, I know what Stephen Fry is saying with his lavender-filled meditation. And because i am you know, got roadrunner syndrome, I want to get up to the 10-minute mark. So it, it's a bit of a challenge <laughs> for some of people like me who are wired and, you know, you want to achieve. So I don't necessarily have to meditate by listening to a track. Sometimes it can just be sitting in the park, breathing. Um, I find swimming very meditative, which just switches off my brain from work and I have time to think. The, the, only, the only caution for those people that love fitness, don't just think they're going for a bike ride, a swim or a run. Is, doing moving meditation is all you need to do because recovery, you need to do both. So pick some activities that lower your parasympathetic activation, lower your heart rate. So this is why stuff like yoga, you know, breathing activities, um, just going for a walk in grass and bare feet, that combined with psychological uh, disconnection are the two ways on recover, recovering and meditation is a really good way of doing that. So does that work for you? That there's sort of there's lots of different ways to be present and get in touch with your thoughts. Because I think a lot of people try meditation, go, oh, it's too hard, I'm gonna throw it out. I go, no, 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 just try a different form. Yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah. No, I mean for me, maybe similar to you, it can be for me, it can be a, a bit of a, a bush hike, it can be a surf, it can be a swim, it can be a bike ride. It could be a bunch of different things. Or it could be just leaving the phone at home and going for a walk with the dog at mm. the end of the day for me and just sort of trying to still the mind a little bit. But yeah, I, I do practice meditation. Uh a person that we both know and Justin Langer, he introduced me to transcendental meditation and I grapple with it to begin with. But now I've started it I, I, I think it's a bit like brushing my teeth I really struggle to let it go and I think occasionally when I do let it go for a week or two over holidays for some reason I start to see the the downside of that so yeah it's uh, interesting to hear I, I think that the, the key is what works for you and, and obviously the lavender may work for some people not you not me but there's there's a range of different ways we can sort of you know slow the mind and, and get mm. that aspect of sort and, of and interesting you mentioned jl i know justin's been doing tm transcendental meditation for a number mm. of years mm. the the big thing that i get everyone to do that i work with now whether it's one-on-one -on -one or if i'm working with a leadership team and if some people go oh, i've tried meditation we had this guy come and he was a real hippie and it didn't work for me I go, okay let's just breathe what do you mean? Okay, let me teach you diaphragmatic breathing. I am not amazed, but I just you know, constantly see when I work with groups and you ask people to show you diaphragmatic breathing. Unless people have done music, uh, some form of art or maybe dramatic arts or singing, uh, a lot of people don't know how to do proper diaphragmatic breathing. Where when you take a big breath in, the diaphragm drops down and all that beautiful oxygen and air flows into those two bellow chambers called the lungs. So if you're listening to this and go, I've tried meditation, agree, I don't like lavender fields, at least learn to breathe. And I'm more than happy I can provide a couple of resources to your listeners where we take people through an activity. It's about three or four minutes just to get you learning to breathe properly. That, that does a huge, huge thing as far as getting you calm and present. So it's, it's what you will feel after TM, but a big part of the TM is also the breathing and getting into that parasympathetic state. Yeah, fantastic. We'll definitely take you up on that. Um, and any sort of quick snippets or takeaways that you can sort of share in so much as making making time for the all-important family and connecting with, you know, whether it's friends, family and, and what that does for you? Yeah, I, I just, uh, one, one hanging one I didn't uh, cover that you asked was play. So just a couple of things on play and uh, your kids, what are, how old are your kids? 
So they're 10 through 5, and four of them. Three sprightly young boys and then an outer girl. Jeez, you, you, you're you bringing the uh, national average up, mate. I thought I was doing a good job with three, <laughs> but you got four. Yeah. Glutton for punishment, I think they call it. If I was competitive, I'd say, right, I'm going to go and have another two just to beat you, but I'm happy with <laughs> Please three. don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure no. you, come and have a look at my household. You do not want to do that. <laughs> so you you will get this. They are young kids play. Your kids have play dates, they watch play school, they have play dough, they have play time, and they have play lunch. They pack it every day. But you just you just sort of just reflect on those words. Kids play. It's fun. They have adventure. You give kids up until the age of five a box. Uh, I thought this with my kids. Yeah, why did I buy them a bike or why did I buy them a Nintendo? You may as well just buy the box because what's a box? This is a spaceship. You know, this is a rocket ship. You know, this is the headquarters of a big recruiting agency. I think that's what a lot of kids say at a young age, right? Yeah, this is (laughs) – I'm an author like my dad. I remember my – my uh, son Archie, when he was in year one, they had to go to school and um, say what their mum and dad do. And then Archie's mum is a newsreader. So my mum's on TV and does news. And my dad um, dad goes on TV and does push-ups. But my brother Mark, <laughs> but my younger brother Marky, who Archie idolises, he's a fireman and a bricklayer. So Archie spoke about <laughs> Mark, not Dad, because, you know, Dad's a consultant and writes books. How boring is that when you're in year one? <laughs> but, but back to the point on play. Yeah, kids play. You just watch your kids. They play. And then as adults, we beat it out of our lives. Uh, and we think we have to, you know, wear this you know, big suit or the, the power dress and uh, and not bring our personality to work. Thank God that's changing. And people like Brené Brown are helping to you know, bring in vulnerability to be authentic. But I spent a lot of time with executives I work with, and as you mentioned in the interview at the start, I do work with a number of CEOs and execs in top you know, 20, top 50 ASX. I don't advertise their name, but sort of I'm in the vault with them, but I'm part of their team to help them be the best they can possibly be. And I often sit down in our office 1.5 metres apart at the moment or you know, over a computer screen, <laughs> Sean, and say to my execs, what do you do for fun, laughter and play? How do you reckon that question goes for a lot of execs? I would imagine there's a lot of them that go still and quiet and they, they struggle with that, you know. Um, and it's, it's funny you say that. Um, we were having a team meeting the other day and I thought we were talking about strategy and this and that. Um, and, and someone popped up and go, can I just say something? We're like, yeah, go for it. And he goes, I think we need to have a bit of fun. Mm. you know, and, and take things a little less seriously. And, and, and you, you can't not take what's going on at the moment seriously. But um, I think you've still got to remind yourself to break and break things up with a bit of fun and play uh, on that side of it. So, yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. And then another thing I say back to kids and what we can learn from them, I ask my kids each night before they go to sleep, I say, what was the best thing that happened today? What was the worst thing? What was the funniest thing? And, and what did you learn? And and I think around that funniest thing is that notion of what was funny, what was enjoyable, or, or that sort of thing to sort of consciously focus on making time for that or discussing that. Um, because I think in this uh, this day and age, it's very easy to get consumed by 
work or whatever and forget to have fun and that notion of play. So I might be wrong, I but love, I suspect. Thank you, do that. No, I, I love because I, I do, we do with our kids the, the best thing and the not best thing because when Archie was yep. five, like we just used to do the best thing. And, you know, you talk about the range of emotions. You learn a lot of this from your kids. And he said, Dad, can we yep. also do the not best things? And I went, yeah, <laughs> why is that, mate? He said, well, when you do the not best things first, it makes the best things better. And I'm like, <laughs> I like it. Uh, two degrees, I'm about to start a PhD, then thinking I'm learning more from a 45-year-old. So what else should we do, Arch? Um, I hear a lot of people, <laughs> yeah, and we do sometimes to learn, but I've never heard someone talk about the funniest thing. So that's a real take-out for me today. Thank you. I'm going to do that tonight with my little tribe and um, ask them, and I'll report back to you what they said. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna throw to something now. And it come to me, it smacked me in the face, and no doubt it smacked you in the face in a different way, but I was lucky enough to go up and uh, and study up at MIT in Boston, and there was a bit of small talk before we kicked off this one day, a group of 10 of us, and this guy from San Diego goes, hey, guys, uh, I just want a, a bit of an icebreaker. Can we talk about the last time we truly got outside our comfort zone? And there was a pause, and I, it smacked me in the face going, wow, I honestly can't remember the last time I was out my, outside my comfort zone, which taught me, I think by nature, we seek to be comfortable. So you took this to another grand extreme uh, in your context where you decided, uh, not being a tremendous swimmer, and that's meant with the utmost uh, respect, I, I had a look at your splits and your times on that first training session you did in preparation for when you swung You're being the nice. I'm channel. As a swimmer, I'm a, I was a really good runner and a better cyclist, so carry on. Don't downplay it. So your friend uh, rings you out of the blue one day talking about getting out of the comfort zone and says, hey, let's swim the English Channel, you know, which I've heard is up there with climbing Mount Everest in terms of the the hardest physical endeavours to do. So, and like I say, not being a great swimmer, why is getting out of your uh, your comfort zone important? And what did you learn from that moment where you you jumped into the English Channel and no doubt anxiety and fear swept through your mind? What did you take away from all that? Yeah, well, the anxiety and fear had been in my mind in the lead-up, so by the time I jumped in, I was ready, um, and I'll explain that in a moment, but let's sort of rewind a little bit. I'm a, I'm a shit swimmer, what um, was a shit swimmer, <laughs> and a, a friend of mine named Natasha Moore who works at KPMG, and I sold my previous business to KPMG, and we're going back about 18 months or more now, and Tash rang me up and said, you know, mate, what are you doing? And I just had worked with Natasha and her team in Canberra, we were doing a, a program for defence, KPMG, and some of our clients. And Natasha had you know, got her fitness levels up and made a number of changes. I talk about the same game, Sean, just to give this context. And uh, I talk about, you know, we wake up in the same house next to the same person, which if you're married, it's recommended. Uh, we wear the same clothes. You know, we <laughs> take the same route to work, and now we have the same route to our home office. We have the same meetings with the same people. We wear the same clothes. We have the same lunch, the same. And I go through the whole day, and people go, oh, my God, that's my life. So I you know, <laughs> spoke about this to Tash and her team. said, you've got to shake things up. You need to build in micro doses of change. The reason, especially a lot of middle-aged men, freak out, even though we talk about change and have innovation labs, is we don't practice it. It's one thing to talk about AI and robotics and everything, but that doesn't mean you actually are ready for change. So you've got to do little things every day. So that's the context. Tash brings me up. G'day, Maisie. How are you? Good. She said, I'm entering you in a swim. I said, Natasha, you know I don't swim. You know, I cycle, I do weights, I do a bit of yoga. 
they get on the ocean and um, surf ski, but I don't don't swim. And she said, oh, I think you're stuck playing the same game. When was the last time you truly got out of your comfort zone and did something different? And I'm like, get stuffed. You can't use my material on me. And she said, why not? I said, because you just can't. She said, I'm entering you in this swim anyway. I said, oh, okay, where's the swim? She said, oh, it goes from Dover to Calais. I went, Tash, that's, no, 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 I'm not doing it. And I, and I won't say for a, you know, your educated, respectful audience the words that <laughs> she actually said. I said, well, what if I don't do it? She said, I'm going to tell everyone, beep, beep, beep. And, and, and <laughs> she played me like a fiddle. It was brilliant. And I went, right, I'm in, I'm in. And I got off the phone and went back to work. And I'm driving home that night and I called her on the hands-free. And I said, um, are you for real? She said, I've just sent the forms to the ECA, which is the English Channel Association, uh, which is official. So we're swimming. It's probably going to be next August, maybe September. So she said, mate, you've got about nine or ten months. So I did what most men do, just bury my head in the sand and thought oh, it'll come around. And then a couple of months later it was Christmas and I thought I'd better swim. And then you quoted the time, I, I swam a one kilometre and it was just terrible. It was like seven, eight or 18 minutes and it was just like awful. Second swim, I swam over a juvenile white pointer at um, – Byron Bay at Wadigo's <laughs> Beach, uh, and I just thought, you know, what the F am I doing? Why, why am I doing this? Anyway, then I had to learn a whole different technique because one of the things about swimming, if you've seen someone, if you go to the pool, Sean, and a lot of your listeners will have done this, and you can see a, a male or female who doesn't look like they're in super shape. They might be carrying a bit of extra weight and, you know, haven't got great lean body mass or muscle mass, but if they swim at school, they hop in the, the water and they like a fish. It's this beautiful muscle memory. Um, I had none of that, so I had to unlearn my old technique by going really slow with this great yet crazy coach called uh, Vlad, a Russian guy. And um, then I had to build up, you know, 2K a week, three, all the way up to 10, 12, 15 kilometres a week. And I thought I was going really well. And then about a month before we went, so it was July last year, and then we went down to Huskinson because the English Channel, it's its awful. Like, so when you said, why did I do it? Because Natasha, in a nice way, appealed to, like, played my ego beautifully. I went, are you right? Otherwise, I would never would have done it. It's cold. It's 14 degrees. There's stingers. It's the busiest shipping lane in the world. You have to dodge tankers and sludge. And it's, it's just bloody awful. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm really doing a great job to sell <laughs> You're it. You're really selling it. <laughs> yeah. But because it's cold, a lot of people hop in and they get hyperfocused. So you've got to swim in cold water and Sydney in winter is not cold enough. We only get down to about 16 degrees, probably more like 17. So you go down south here in the south coast at Huskinson and um, we're standing on the beach on this Saturday morning, 4.50am, we're in the water at 5am, we swim for an hour, we had an hour off, we're swimming for another hour, hour off, swim for another hour, hour off, another hour. So we did that four times. Then the following day we had to do a two-hour swim, one hour off, one hour, one hour off, one hour. And if you didn't get through that, you're not going to do the channel swim mm. um, because it shows, one, you can't do the distance, but two, you can't handle sustained cold. Now, I'm pretty lean, so I don't have a lot of fat and I shiver. So I hopped in on this first uh, swim on 5 a.m. on the Saturday morning. Chloe McCardle, who is the, the coach, said, sometimes I go in alphabetical order, but today I'm going to shake it up a bit. We're going to start with your first name. So, and I'm there, there's 20 of us. And I just thought, I oh, know she's going to pick me. Let's go, Andrew. And I'm like, oh, far <laughs> out, and a few other words. And, you know, I did what most men do. I just yeah, 
put on bravado and thought I was fine. I got out about 300 metres, it was freezing, and I had an anxiety attack sweep across me. Mm. Have you ever had an anxiety attack, Sean? Yep, yep, yep. I'd never had one, and so um, at this stage I'm 45 years of age, and it's just this sweeping wave across me. I'm out in this cold, black, dark water, and if I turn around and go back, I'm out. They're going to put a, a pencil or a line through my name. And I'm just thinking, why am I doing this? This is stupid. I don't swim. Uh, F you, Natasha. I was doing, I've got a, a, a <laughs> hashtag, hashtag F you, Tash. Um, you know, I, I do weights. I do, so I went through this whole thing and I turned around and these other two ladies uh, swam by. It's pitch black and you have this little marker on you so they don't lose anyone to the light. And this lady named Andrea said to me, oh, Andrea, are you okay? I went, yeah, yeah, I'll just stop fixing up my, my, my tie. But I lied. I was ready to go back. And then she swam off and I went, Andrea, she should have gone before me. Then I got angry that, you know, I went first. I'd been stitched up. And then I thought, no, no, two people are going to look at this and uh, probably give me a hard time. One, what, what do I do to my kids to say to Archie and Mickey, yeah, daddy got scared and had to come back? The second one was more through fear. My mates from Dubbo, Mario, Ego, Dino and Lapo, I finished school with those guys and they teased me for the rest of my life that I failed and quit. And I just took a big breath and, and I, I had this little, this, this, this sort of quote came, I've never had it before, but it was stay calm, be strong, you've got this. And it built, stay calm, be strong, you've got this. And I turned around I could see Andrea and I started to kick. Stay calm, be strong, you've got this. I started to breathe. Mm. I called Andrea and I went past and I ended up swimming in that one hour. I did um, yeah, massive PB for me. I did 3.7K, which is a huge improvement on what I've done. And I ended up you know, swimming really solidly for all that two days. Um, and it was amazing, not what it did for my body, but my brain. I just looked at everything mm. differently. So I'm, 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 I'm very, very respectful to Natasha. She appealed to my ego. Um, but I learned so much from that. And I can now, with authenticity, talk to people, get out of your comfort zone, don't play the same game, because that opened up a lot of opportunities for work and creativity and writing the book that I think would have been dormant, Sean, if... I hadn't scared the living daylights out of myself and done a challenge. Now, I would say don't do something like that every year. Maybe pick a big challenge every three to five years. <laughs> no, I love that. And I think uh, getting out of your comfort zone or not is a habit, right? So you created a habit of being prepared to push through that. And even when you'd done all the training and got in there and started swimming, that anxiety sort of swept over you and you had a choice, right? You had this choice whether or not to swim back to the boat or to shore and to say, you know what, not for me. Or you had that choice to say, you know what, I'm going to find a way. And to land on that mantra, I think it's fantastic. And I'm more than just a little bit confident to say that uh, having chosen the path you ultimately went down was far greater than giving up. And I think that's uh, often a choice we're faced with in different capacities. So I think there's a, a lot to be learned by that answer. I think that's really, really good. But I, I want to throw, talking about staying strong, I want to throw to you about divorce. So you're, as we touched on before, high achiever, used to being super successful, and then all of a sudden, correct me if I'm wrong, at the age of 39, you're faced with this experience of, of becoming divorced and, and you talk about in your book about being functionally depressed and then you land on this formula to get to where you are now um, and uh, and recover from that. What can you share and, and what did you learn from how you basically rebuilt yourself through that exercise, which, let's, let's face it, you know, it happens to 50% of all marriages. So what can you share in that regard? 
Yeah, look, it happens to more because not all people now are married in de facto relationships. So mm. some of the statistic mm. is it's around two-thirds of serious relationship end up you know, blowing up. And, and if you've got kids, it's, it's literally like ripping your heart out. Um, just one, one thing I just realised, I gave you the wrong time. I said the first kilometre I swam was 17 minutes. It was 23 minutes. I just had a little yeah. sort of thought bubble come back into my mind. A 17-minute <laughs> 1K is good. I'd, I'd take that. That's good. But 23 <laughs> minutes is crap. Um, so, look, I was the performance guy. I built a narrative that I was good at sport. I was good at study and academia and I was good at business. I built and sold a few businesses. You know, I worked with the Australian cricket team, worked with the Sydney Swans, worked with a number of Olympic athletes. Um, I, you know, I was the performance guy and then suddenly I go through a divorce. So if I'd run into you on the street, what do I say to you? You know, I've got failure. It's called marriage failure. It's not called, you know, marriage reconnection or marriage realignment. It's, it's such a, a heavy word to bear if you allow it to be so heavy like I did. Uh, I come from an Irish Catholic background. My mum and dad are still together. They'll celebrate 50 years of marriage, I think, in two years' time, which is a phenomenal achievement, right, to be together for 50 years. And, you know, we, we celebrate the rock stars and the business gods, but I, I think the people who stay together for 50 years, it's amazing. You know? It shows goal-setting connection, ups and downs. So that was my background, right? You stay together two young kids, and then suddenly, bang, um, Nina and I, my former wife, we, we moved apart. Uh, and it had been a gradual thing. You know, there's always two sides and the, the, the reality is somewhere in the middle. But, you know, I was so focused on building my brand and the business that I wasn't focused on the marriage. Um, and then when it dissolved, it had gone you know, too far. There was a sort of broken down trust between us and, yeah, just... It dissolved, and then I, I, I'm in an apartment like I was back in my university days. No dog, no wife, no kids, no garage, no backyard, no purpose, no joy, no fun. And as I talk about in the book, for three months, maybe a little bit more, I'd come home every day and burst into tears, you know, living this facade as the performance guy, thinking I had to keep it together. But I didn't tell people the first month or two because I thought, you know, I will be able to get it back together. Um, and I, I did, I walked around functioning depressed for probably 18 months to two years because I, I didn't acknowledge that, what I said earlier, so it's a really interesting that you've sort of done this question towards the end because hopefully if you're listening to this, you'll, you'll get my understanding now that I, I do believe we need a range of emotions. That's a new thought process and a new mindset, so it does back up you can change the way you think. Because I've learned that, that, you know, the, the tough times, you actually learn more from the challenges in your life and you grow more from the tough times than you do from the good times. But up until 39, Sean, I'd been somewhat blessed. You know, I'd won multiple state championships. I'd done well at school, well at relationships, well at business. Um, everything I'd done was successful and then suddenly, bang, I was hit with this real uh, it's a, phew, heaviness of a marriage breakdown and I actually had to rebuild myself over a couple of years. It wasn't just a few weeks. So I had to learn to think differently, work with a wonderful woman, a wonderful psychologist named Jill McNaught, who taught me that the hardship, the scar tissue we get from the challenging times makes us, doesn't just break us. But you have to learn. You know, I had to take the learnings. What did I do wrong? What do I need to do differently next time? Take responsibility. Started to train different. Um, I think that really opened up the pathway to doing something like a swim because I'd done uh, a lot more weights because I used to be a cardio kid. I just would run and do uh, cycling and, you know, a bit of surf ski, but I did swimming. I did uh, paddle boarding, a whole lot of different stuff, yoga. 
uh, I ate differently, and also I really had to focus on connection and not just, you know, be a family member or be an employee or a boss, but I had to connect. And that takes effort, right, like to really get out of your own busyness and, and make an effort. Um, and, and that was really the premise to, you know, I had to move, fuel, recharge, uh, think, connect and play differently. So really the book was the 20 years of research that Dr. Tom and I had done together, or the 15 years together, 20 years individually, but then my own experiment of a marriage breakdown, I had to put those six levers to build myself back. And I can honestly say now that you know, life's better than it has ever been. Um, and then when I do go through some ups and downs now, I know that that's part of the range of emotions in life. But when it hit me, like when it hits a lot of men, um, it really rocks us. So for anyone who is going through a relationship breakdown or you know relationship turmoil, get support. You're not an island. A man or a woman isn't an island. Get, get some you know, psychologists or relationship experts, but also your friends and family. I've got some wonderful people around me who really helped me in a tough time. No, fantastic. Well, look, uh, I love that uh, you're open and vulnerable enough to sort of talk about that exercise that so many people go through, but uh, you sought that uh, support and guidance, but yeah, ultimately you leverage your own process to sort of come out the other side and, and clearly that's, uh, that's worked well for you. So uh, kudos yeah. to you in that regard. Oh, so just on that, just quickly, um, the guy treated myself as a human guinea pig and I, I think we all should be doing some guinea pig experiments throughout our lives just to have a bit of fun with this. But the other thing is just mention the word vulnerability. So just to round out, I thought people would judge me, Sean, that if I said, oh, I had a marriage uh, breakdown, marriage failure, people go, oh, I'm not going to work with him. But you know what? It actually, it made me more approachable. And I, I didn't realise this. I think when, you know, if people look at you and think you've only ever had success, one, they think you're full of shit. Two, they think you're unapproachable. <laughs> and three, they probably think you're not living in the real world. So I find now I can have that conversation and really to quote Cheryl Sandenberg, to lean in when someone's telling me that they're struggling. I get it. I know the emotions. I know the feelings. I know the roller coaster. I actually think it's made me a much better coach, a better speaker, a better author, better in all domains and a better friend and a better family member as well because I've been through that hard time. So yeah, try and take the harder times in life as a learning, not just get, get weighed down by it. Yep. At, at the end of the day, I see it the same way. Challenges are a bit of a gift. It's hard to see it at certain times, but you learn so much more. And, and back to that notion of vulnerability, I guess if you are vulnerable, you are real. And I think if you are real, you are trustworthy and people can sort of connect with you on that side as opposed to that Instagram life that uh, that is portrayed out there. So certainly conscious of time, Andrew, and you're giving some great takeaways, but I just want to fire a quick uh, couple of questions. You talk about uh, quotes uh, or excerpts um, from your book or from the the um, presentation you did with us the other day, but can you talk quickly about slowing down to speed up and, and maybe that notion of uh, a hapa hapa and then also why Barack Obama wore the same type of suit every day and, and, and maybe why that uh, serves some sort of cognitive benefit? You picked three good ones and you, uh, you, you, you're keeping me on my toes. I didn't know which way you're going to go with all this. So so you've got slowing down in order to speed up, Hapa Hapa and Obama wearing the same suit. All right, let's do them uh, yes. in, in a row. Let's rapid fire. <laughs> slowing down to speed up is a moniker that the military use and I um, really got an opening to this when I was at KPMG that we got to work with a number of different groups in the military, even especially at the pointy end. And it is, you know, that statement in itself, right, slow down before you speed up. So if you're a sniper or if you're a soldier, 
You don't want to be out in the jungle or on consignment in the desert and racing around, wasting all this energy. So it's being calm, ready for what I call your performance moments. So I think a lot of us in the corporate world need to take that moniker as well, you know, slow down in between your performance moments, the meetings, the presentations, the connections with your employees that matter and have a bit of downtime in between. So that's the first one. Give that a tick. Hapa, hapa. I spent a lot of my 20s staring at Kenyan backsides. <laughs> On the running track. Uh, Kenyan middle distance runners would come to Hobart every year and they would uh, base down there for a couple of months in our summer, which in Hobart, such a, it's a glorious place, beautiful summer, not too hot. Um, and so we'd run with the Kenyans. So, so we'd run behind the Kenyans, never beat a Kenyan. <laughs> and, and even on a Sunday morning, sure, we'd do a recovery run and we were doing sub four-minute kilometres on a recovery run. Wow. And I, I wish I could do one sub four-minute kilometre now. Um, <laughs> so we do that for 20K. And over the last three or four K, the Kenyans would kick down to 320s, 330s and just say, we'll see you back at the car. But the, the Kenyans wow. are such good runners for a few reasons. One is the genetics. Uh, two, a lot of them from the Rift Valley, they're at altitude. Uh, three, they don't have any Nintendos and other distractions. So when you run for, they actually call it Nike back then because uh, the Kenyan team was sponsored by Nike, it's a way out. And we got to hang out with you know, Sammy Langert, uh, uh, Bernard uh, Moses, Kiptanui, a lot of these guys had come out. And they were just legends, right? But they were beautiful people. And they had this word called hapa hapa, which in Swahili means slowly, slowly, and now, now. So the Kenyans would run three-minute kilometres back-to-back, but then they would recover and have some hapa hapa. What did us Westerners do? We'd run and we'd go out and date and then try and get degrees and then try and run businesses and wonder why we stare at Kenyan backside. So slowing down to speed up and hapa hapa are very similar. You know, we've got to have some off some downtime to allow us to get up in the key performance moments. And why did Barack Obama wear the same suit over and over? Now, it's similar to hear about Steve Jobs did the same thing, had that uh-huh. turtleneck skivvy in the jeans. I think Mark Zuckerberg does it for Facebook. Uh-huh. Um, big Carl Stefanovic did this on the Today Show for a year to show the inequality because no one noticed that he wore the same blue suit, whereas Lisa Wilkinson back then, her co-host, if she wore the same dress two days in a row, she would have got, you know, Pillared yep. in the media. Um, but the reason for Barack Obama and some of the uh, entrepreneurs do it, it takes out decision-making process. Now, I don't know how much this is going to make a difference to be US president or to, to start a unicorn, but the theory goes for really busy people. If they don't have to decide on what they're wearing on that day, that's one less decision on something menial and one extra decision they free up for something important. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I used to like talking about US presidents until the current term, and I'm still <laughs> waiting for someone to, to go, hey, it's a joke. <laughs> we're not going to get political today, right? No, absolutely not. Now, I'm going to get uh, retrospective quickly as we round up, and we've covered a lot today, but knowing what you know now and you've been on a hell of a journey and you've learned a lot of great stuff and you're now sharing the, the, those learnings with the world, which is fantastic, as you look back to a 20-year-old version of Andrew May, is there any other advice that you would pass on to that young fella having learnt what you've learnt now? Well, that's a cracker of a question. And you said we're going to wrap up. Um, it's not <laughs> <laughs> How long we got? <laughs> let, let me give you two things. Uh, number one, we just spoke about it, is you know, slow down to speed up. It's old bull versus young bull. There's lots of different ways mm. of uh, explaining this. But um, don't try and do everything straight away. And, and, and link with that, enjoyed. I think in my 20s and 30s, I was in such haste 
to do stuff mm. that I didn't enjoy it anywhere near as much as I have in my 40s. Like I'm loving work now. I'm loving life now. I'm much more present. I don't know whether you were the same in your 20s, Sean, and early 30s, but I, I was in a real absolutely. rush. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the second thing I would add is just continually evolve, adapt, and grow. It, it sounds like it's a bit of a contradiction, but the first one is, you know, enjoy it and be in the moment a little bit more. And the second one is adapt and change. I think it's the oscillation between those two things. So, Sean, in summary, with cracker of a question to finish, I think it's a balance of I'd slow down a little bit more along the journey and be more present, but then don't get complacent, keep learning, keep growing, especially the brain. It all stems from there, you know, even to change the body, evolve the body, grow the body, keep that brain malleable and keep that neuroplasticity. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, uh, just in closing, really grateful that you've taken all this time to share some of those great insights. But um, just quickly, what exciting initiatives or offerings are you working on at the moment and how do people find out more about you, Andrew? Uh, The main one we're doing at the moment is 30 Day Boost, which is a program to energise employees, help them in this new world of work focus on mindset and mental health and give people the skills to stay fit while our gyms and yoga studios and everything are either closed or very restricted with the amount of people. So to find me, um, two main ways, go to andrewmay.com, so www.andrewmay.com, or our bigger business is Strive Stronger, strivestronger.com, and on social media at Andrew May, so on Instagram, on Twitter, and uh, same at Andrew May and LinkedIn. No, well, fantastic. Well, look, uh, you say purpose is important. Obviously, your purpose is about helping other people become their best version. You're doing a lot of that. So congratulations, mate, and thanks for taking the time to uh, share a lot of those key learnings. It's been awesome. Hey, thank you. And um, I'm also, I've got a new question, the repertoire at dinner tonight. I will report back to you when I ask my <laughs> little guys, what was the funniest thing? And um, I'm, yeah, I can't wait to ask that question tonight. No, no, fantastic, mate. Well, thanks so much and uh, look forward to picking up the conversation at some stage. Sounds good. Let's be very optimistic. Let's apply all the performance strategies we've spoken about, all the positive psychology, and go the wallabies in the future, huh? (laughs) Well, I was going to say before, you share, your last answer was almost identical to what Richie McCall said. And he said, uh, reflecting back on his career, if there's one thing he would do, he would stop and enjoy the journey a little bit more rather than be fixated on that next goal. So it's good to see that you and Richie share a similar sort of philosophy. Uh, if you're putting me in any <laughs> sentence with Richie McCall, I will take it. I think he's a legend. I know you've watched his documentary. He is an example, an amazing example of human performance. So, um, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take that, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm clutching to be put in the same sentence. But it's interesting. I reckon a lot of people would say that around our vintage, that you know, a bit of wisdom makes you realise you don't just have to do it all overnight and enjoy it along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nah, thanks again, Andrew. You've been amazing. Okay. See you, mate. All right, guys. Thanks again for tuning in to the podcast. If you think of anyone else in your network that might enjoy or appreciate some of these learnings, please feel free to pass on. And alternatively, uh, feel free to subscribe or follow us on the likes of the iTunes podcast store or your uh, preferred channel. But um, yeah, really appreciate you giving up your time to listen to some of these takeaways. And I'm confident that uh, everyone's hopefully got some value through that process.